don't talk too much. So talk a little bit. You don't eat much, you don't talk much. <laughs> I'm just listening. This is the Just Listening Podcast with pizza artist Eric John. everybody and welcome to the show today. This is Just Listening. I am Eric John. And of course, before we get into it, I've got to tell you about the best artisan soda in the entire world. That's Yacht Club Soda. Go to YachtClubSoda.com right now and check out all the amazing flavors they have. As long as you live in the continental United States, um, you can order some for yourself. John Scambato over there at Yacht Club Soda will send some to your door. They've got amazing flavors. They've got orange cream, root beer, lemon lime, blue raspberry, uh, they've got all kinds of cool seasonal blends as well. I think uh, now with Halloween coming up, they'll, they're going to have the uh, Mercy Brown flavor out, uh, which is fantastic. Um, you really got to check it out. This stuff's incredible. Right now, I'm really into this pale, dry ginger ale. It's the best ginger ale I've ever had in my entire life. They use real cane sugar, uh, none of this high fructose corn syrup uh, stuff that the uh, the big companies are using. And, uh, and they come in glass bottles. It's fantastic. You've got to try it. So go right now. Go to YachtClubSoda.com and order some for yourself. Also, um, I've got lots of new pizza art coming out on a weekly basis right now. So please, please go to my Twitter at EricJohnArt um, or Instagram at EricJohnPizzaArt uh, and check out all the new stuff I've got coming out. I've already had a, uh, I did a James Gandolfini pizza um, I did a dazed and confused, uh, pizza with Wooderson on it. I've got lots of cool stuff planned. So go check that stuff out. Um, and please look forward to, uh, the new NFTs I'm going to have coming out. That's right. NFTs are not dead. Uh, go check, check those out coming in 2024. Okay. On the show today, uh, very excited to have this guest yet another presidential candidate from the Libertarian Party, uh, Dr. Michael Rechtenwald uh, on the show today. Uh, Michael's got a great story. Um, you know, he's he's been on shows like Tucker and he's been on the Tom Woods show and uh, Dave Smith's podcast, Part of the Problem, and lots of different places to tell his story. Um, as a university professor who was, uh, you know, very much left wing um, and started standing up against a lot of the woke stuff, for lack of a better term, that's been going on. And um, went went through some real hell, um, uh, being shunned by his peers. And um, well, you know what? I'll let him tell the story uh, before I tell it for him. Um, so, without further ado, Michael, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Eric. Good to be here. So, tell everyone listening wh- why are you running for president? Well, it wasn't really my idea, to be quite honest. I was asked by the Mises Caucus. Uh, leader to run. And uh, after, you know, giving it some thought and understanding the mission that the the candidacy represents, um, I looked at it and said, uh, you know, also I ran it by my family and friends and advisors. And I thought to myself, this is something I can't, I can't not do. I had to do it because the country is in such horrible shape. Uh, We're living under, you know, terrible economic and cultural and political and uh, social conditions that we need to get this message out and get it out strongly. And so I decided to do it because um, they vested this trust in me, uh, given my, you know, background. And I thought this was uh, something that I just have to do. 
What, what kind of effect does doing something like running for president have on your everyday life and, and your family life? I'm very curious about that. Oh, that's a great question. Uh, so, you know, look, I had a nice life. I still do, but it was, you know, I didn't need this. <laughs> and I just want to make clear that I'm not doing this for any personal gain. I already had a, a real nice audience and, you know, brisk sales in my books and uh, quite uh, a nice setup in terms of like my speaking engagements, my writing, uh, commissioned writing, my uh, podcast uh, actually called Rekt, R-E-K-T. And, uh, you know, so it, it's uh, definitely put stress on and uh, makes my schedule a lot heavier. Um, I had a pretty nice loose schedule, but now it's pretty tight and, uh, it's, uh, you know, I, I was a little bit, I guess I shouldn't have been taken aback by some of the hate coming from within the party, but, um, I've gotten used to it and, um, uh, it's just, uh, water off my back at this point. And, uh, this is just too important to, uh, get tied up in that kind of stuff. I'm, well, I'm going to uh, to be bringing it to the regime, not to the uh, other LP candidates. What, what kind of I mean, what kind of criticisms have people been lobbing your way that you found surprising? Well, I mean, it, it's not so much really valid criticisms. It's it's kind of like, uh, uh, you, know, you know, trolling and and uh, things that can't really be answered. And you, you can tell a lot of things not not really said or asked in good faith. So I'd like to leave it at that. It was, it's just uh, an unpleasant uh, uh, an unpleasant uh, byproduct of this, but it's not something that's going to deter me. Well, you're, you're certainly no uh, stranger to um, dealing with, uh, you know, online trolling and, and hate coming your way, just given your background um, and your story. Yeah. Um, you know, and so just catch people up a little bit who might not be aware of what you went through um, as a professor at NYU. Just give them the the Cliff's notes, like a really quick explanation of what exactly happened to you. Yeah, I mean, I was a prof uh, a professor at NYU for I had been there by this time about eight years, and uh, you know, doing quite well there. And then everything was fine. In fact, I was kind of like the golden boy in my program. Uh, the dean loved me. I was uh, bringing in international conferences and publishing more than my colleagues by like a light year. And uh, then I, I, uh, I dared to criticize some of the things going on uh, on campus. And uh, in 2016, it came to a head. Um, I, I started an anonymous Twitter account called AntiPCNYUProf and started tweeting uh, criticisms of the, what is now called woke ideology, but really was social justice ideology and its um, manifestations uh, in official policies and practices at NYU. And before you know it, um, I was uh, interviewed by the student newspaper. I went on the record as myself, and within two days of that interview appearing, I was... Uh, coerced into a leave of absence, <clears throat> did not, uh, denounced by the diversity, equity, and inclusion group. Uh, and, uh, you know, they effectively tried to cancel me. They didn't, uh, they were not successful in doing that, but, you know, they brought the heat. And, uh, so, you know, that, 
that ended with me actually getting a settlement and leaving NYU, going on my own as an intellectual, uh, intrepid intellectual entrepreneur, I like to think of it as. You you mentioned in your uh, appearance on the uh, Dave Smith podcast, part of the problem, that, um, you know, that these people uh, traumatized you. Um, the, yes. This was a very difficult experience. I think one of the things they did was they they sent you to sort of a uh, a collegiate Siberia on campus, which was uh, somewhere in the Russian department. And moving your office to a place with no windows and it, like all this crazy stuff. Um, did it, did it take you a while to kind of get over all that? Uh, it took it took a little while. I wrote a book about it and that helped, and that book became very successful. Springtime for snowflakes ended up on. Uh, you know, I was ended up on Fox News like four or five times just on that book alone. And uh, one one time I was on there, they put the book up as the backdrop for the whole show. And uh, it bounced the book up into the top 50 out of all books on Amazon. So uh, there's nothing like a sweet revenge uh, and revenge is best served, however, <laughs> and whether cold or hot. I think it got served hot in this case, but, uh, yeah, I mean, there was some, there was some adjustments to be made, but, um, you know, I got reoriented and, uh, I, I got over it and, uh, it wasn't, uh, something, in fact, it actually spurred me creatively and intellectually like nothing else spurred me on. Was there anyone on campus, any of the other professors you were friends with on a personal level, uh, like a anybody who uh, stood up for you publicly? And, and if not, uh, did anyone reach out to you privately to, to, to lend you any kind of support when you were going through this from, you know, from your, your community there at NYU? That's a great question. Um, I had one person, uh, an adjunct professor, came to me privately and said he totally agreed with me. Uh, and that his politics were uh, somewhat aligned. I mean, I won't get into his politics. I, I wouldn't. I don't. Uh, I don't agree with them entirely at all. But he was basically right wing, and he said, "Look, uh, I, I agree with you, but I can't say anything. Or I'll lose my job." That's it. Nobody else. Nobody else uh, came to uh, either defend me or to provide any uh, agreement or to express any agreement or to provide any uh, consolation. It was really, they cowed most of the faculty into uh, utterly um, uh, avoiding me and, uh, you know, isolating me and uh, making me a pariah on campus. Um, I was, I was, uh, I would walk down the sidewalk and faculty members from my program would, ch would cross the street to walk on the other side of the street to stay away from me. Uh, as if I was like some sort of a contagion or as carrier of a pestilence. Uh, <laughs> and so, yeah, it was, it was pretty wild, man. Sort of like uh, social distancing before social distancing and, and, yeah, that's and you're right. patient yeah. zero. Um, why, you know, it occurs to me that, you know, you could have just kept tweeting from this account anonymously forever. Like you could still have this Twitter account today and have, you know, a million followers, who knows, and just still be tweeting from it. Why did you decide to out yourself? Well, when I, when I, um, before I did the interview, I, I thought, I, I don't know if I'll go on the record publicly as myself. Maybe I'll do this anonymously. And they were willing to publish it that way. 
But after I did the interview, I thought, man, this stuff needs to be said and somebody needs to say it. And I don't see anything wrong with what I'm saying. In fact, it has to be said and I stand behind what I'm saying. So I went on the record publicly as myself. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't taken lightly, but I knew uh, that it had to be said and, uh, and that somebody had to say it and it may as well, may as well have been me. You, know, you mentioned um, in, in I think it was the same interview with Dave Smith um, that it was, you know, this event, um, the backlash against you and um, the entire mob turning against you. All these people you thought were, were your friends and people you had aligned with for so many years really spurred on your conversion, um, for yes. lack of a better term, to a more libertarian way of thinking Um and that you, you mentioned that you had started out more as a civil libertarian and that you weren't really convinced on the economics. And I found that interesting as someone who used to be on the left as well. Um, you know, at, at what point did you really start thinking about the economics of it? Because as a former Marxist, um, as, as you used to identify, uh, I can imagine that must have been a big leap for you. So, yeah, you know, yeah. what was it that really got your mind thinking that maybe it's not just the woke stuff here. Uh, maybe it's not just the civil liberties here that I, maybe I was wrong about. It's, it's this other stuff too. Yeah, uh, that's a great question. So uh, I won't approach it from the standpoint of what I read and all that, because I, I did say that on uh, Dave's show. Really, I realized the connection between economic liberty and personal liberty. So, and I realized that they're intimately, in fact, uh, connected such that, you know, personal individual liberty is, is totally dependent upon property rights, rights of, uh, in, in the property in oneself to start. And that uh, without that right, you don't have any rights. Uh, and, you, you know, I mean, I think Hoppe proved this when he, in his um, argumentation ethics, you have to be self-owning to even make a statement. So the point being that I, I recognize the connection between the economic and the civil liberties. And then I plumb deeply into the economics and the history of le leftist criminality, which had been more or less obscured from my view by leftism itself. Um, there's a, a kind of uh, the, you know, leftism keeps you in a bubble. It doesn't really point you to some of the criminalities uh, and the worst criminality in political history can be ascribed to leftism in power. And I, when I started to delve into that, uh, reading things like the Black Book of Communism and d digging deeply in the Stalin digital archive, uh, I recognize that. Look, this was this has been a criminal, a criminal, uh, criminal ideology, a criminal undertaking. Socialism, communism is a criminal undertaking. There's nothing redeemable about it, morally, ethically, economically, uh, or in terms of civil liberty. Nothing. You mentioned the bubble uh, that exists on the on the left, and I, I certainly experienced this myself when I was in college, um, and, and it's very thick. It's not easy to break through. Um, and so I'm wondering, you know, um, had you not gone through this experience um, and sort of being shunned by the left, um, and you had 
somehow been able to, you know, get into contact with the writings of Rothbard while you were still a professor at NYU and and really contended with what what he was saying intellectually. Do you think you you would have been able to make that intellectual jump um, on your own? Or do you think that the trauma and everything you went through really made it a lot easier for you to, to take what Rothbard uh, or Mises was saying seriously? I, I would look at the reading, or I should say the experience that I went through as a kind of accelerant. It, it accelerated my transformation. I do believe it probably would have eventually happened, but it would have been slower and more tedious. Uh, but this accelerated the transformation of the trauma that was uh, doled out to me or imposed on me by these maniacs certainly uh, accelerated my development. And uh, I'm actually grateful for it. Uh, for them, I, to them, I thank them uh, for what they did. Where, where did your history uh, with Marxism come from? Is this something you learned when you were in college? Were your parents um, very much on the left? Did you get influenced by them? Like, where did that all come from originally? Oh, that's a great question. So my parents were not leftists or communists at all. My father was actually a Reagan uh, Democrat. Uh, and uh, I did have like early on, I think there was a lot of permeation in the culture in the seventies through the media, uh, so that I unconsciously absorbed, uh, some Marxist ideas without knowing it. And then, uh, I eventually, you know, was introduced to it explicitly in graduate school, particularly. And, uh, then it was kind of like an indoctrination process where you're fed nothing but these Marxists and Marxist feminists and, you know, all these various varieties of Marxist and leftist uh, thinking and, uh, and postmodern theory as well, which is leftist, really. Um, there, isn't, there hasn't been a, a right-wing or a right-leaning uh, postmodern theorist that, of note. So I think there was a pre- a pre a preconditioning in the media and uh, in the culture in the seventies, and then an explicit exposure to that uh, later in life uh, really predisposed me to it. Also, you know, I I, I detail some experiences in uh, my book Springtime for Snowflakes. You know, where some things happened that kind of uh, put a chip on my shoulder about class issues. Um, I talked about this. I went to when I was about to go to high school, I was a, you know, very, very scholarly student. And uh, uh, unlike my siblings, frankly, I was kind of the black sheep for being this way. Uh, and uh, my father recognized it, and he took me to this uh, uh, prep school to seek admissions. It was called Shady Side Academy, which is uh, really telling the name. Just this <laughs> waspy prep school at the time. And they said, you know, Mr. Rechtenwald talking to my father, and I was sitting right there. Your son, he would do here uh, well here academically, but I'm afraid he would not fit in socially. It's a social class uh, issue, and uh, that sort of put a um, that put a chip on my shoulder for some time uh, that I couldn't get into a good school like that because of my class what perceived to be my class provenance. 
Man, I can I can only imagine what that must have been like for a, a young kid to hear. It's, it's very blunt, <laughs> and um, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, it makes sense to me. I can see why like that would really really affect your uh, thinking going forward and what you gravitated towards. Um, and yeah. you know, I mean, I came out of a very working class family, although my father wasn't like a union man or anything. He was an independent contractor, but it was it was like manual labor type background. And, uh, you know, we, we, you know, we, they, you know, my, my father, they, he struggled for everything we got, like worked his ass off, frankly, excuse my language. Oh, that's Uh, fine. That's fine. Um, and, uh, so, you know, also I, I did sense the sense, I had a sense in which we, we were kind of treated like the Beverly Hillbillies in some cases, because we would go, for example, to visit people. Uh, other, you know, friends of my father that came from uh, like white collar class, if you will. And we would drive up in a truck with a tarp over the back and we'd all be sitting in the back of the truck. And I just feel, I felt that we, we came from a different class and, uh, I kind of had that sense. And then, you know, overcoming that, uh, both within the family you know, to try to be like an intellectual and academic from within a family like that, you have you have to fight against two two uh, forces. That is the forces within your family that don't understand it, and then the outside world that also doesn't uh, want to admit an outsider into their into their ranks. So that, that's all been part of my story. Is, is there a sort of unique social element to being a Marxist or being on the left that's really attractive, especially to a young person who, you know, is being told you're not going to fit in here, you're not going to fit in there. Um, <laughs> you know, is there is there something about it that, especially for young people, and maybe that's why it's so alluring to young people, it's, it's like, here, you, you know, come join us, be a part of this group, be a part of something. Um, is, is that a big part of it in your experience? Yeah, I mean, it channels... Uh... It, it provides a channel for anger and resentment, and uh, it also provides like an ethical ideal uh, that you're you know you're 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 made to see or think rather that socialism represents the more ethical position, and that it is something to aspire to because it's higher you know uh, higher uh, it's ethically higher than the capitalist marketplace. Uh, so. Uh, and then, of course, there's the rebellious streak in almost all adolescents, and so it attracts uh, those who are rebellious. And I think all of those combined can add up into a conviction. You know, you mentioned the ethical argument there, and you know, this is something I mentioned in the in the spaces that you did with Josie uh, and Clint. Um, which I really enjoyed. It was a marathon. I did end up listening to the whole thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but you can, you know, and people listening, you can go check that out if you, uh, if you, uh, maybe I'll put it in the show notes, a link to it on Twitter. Um, yeah. But uh, Michael did a great spaces, long, very long spaces with uh, Josie, the redheaded libertarian, and Clint Russell. Um, and one thing I had, I had mentioned when I was lucky enough to be able to speak was how powerful the moral argument is, especially for people on the left um, and especially young people. Do, do you think like how, how do you plan on making that argument uh, going forward in this race and really speaking to, um, you know, the, the, the moral aspects of free markets and things like that? Yeah, I mean, it's it's pretty easy. Um, you know, you have to look at this as uh, in terms of property and the individual 
uh, has has the right of property in oneself, and that without that right, you don't have any other rights. And likewise, uh, socialism violates that very first ethical principle because you are now owned by the state. You are not your own your own property. You can't dispose of your own labor and your own uh, on your own terms. You're often assigned a job, uh, etc. Furthermore, it's theft. Uh, the redistribution that it seeks is theft of property. And uh, this has been pointed out really well by Hoppe in his book, uh, Socialist, I think it's Socialist and Capitalist Theory or something like that. I haven't got, I don't have the exact title off the top of my head here. It's, it's very clearly demonstrated how it's an unethical, extremely unethical position. What did you think of Hoppe when you first discovered his writing? I thought he was a maniac, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I liked it. I, I mean, there's some places he goes where I don't, I don't go that far. It sounds authoritarian in some places, actually, and I am like anti-authoritarian. So that I don't go to the point of you know physical removal and all that. Uh, I think, and I also believe in uh, the right of expression uh, under you know whatever circumstances. So um, in that sense, you know, I, I think I'm more libertarian than him. But uh, there's some other arguments, though, that are so strong and that I found so appealing and so convincing uh, that uh, I found him to be an indispensable source for a lot of, uh, for a lot of the, the theory and uh, explication that's necessary for fully grasping uh, the breadth and the depth and the implications of uh, what we believe. You know, one of the things that you mentioned also in the in the Twitter spaces that, that I, I, I mentioned before um, is that you're a big fan of localism. And, and I am also a, as well a huge fan of localism and the idea of localism. But one thing that kind of confused me and, and, I'm you know, look, I I always try to go into things assuming maybe I'm wrong or like I don't understand something. It, it's how I was able to make the transformation from sort of a leftist way of thinking to a libertarian way of thinking in the first place. So I'm hoping you can maybe help me understand this. You, when I, when in the spaces I had asked you about um, local communities being able to enact laws um, or ordinances uh, restricting mm -hmm. certain types of behavior. Um, oh yeah, that and, was you. Okay. And yeah. we were, yeah. And we, and it was more specifically in the context of drugs um, whether it's allowing drugs into the community, allowing people to sell them, allowing people to use them or whatever. Um, and you were pretty firm that you didn't think that was okay. Um, that you felt like, um, you know, libertarian ideals should, uh, including like the, you know, the freedom to use whatever drug you want, for instance, um, should exist no matter what, no matter the, the community. Um, but then later on in the spaces, when the, the, the topic of abortion came up, you, you know, articulated that you, you you were pretty happy with the status quo, with the states being able to sort of determine what they wanted to do on that issue. So I'm just I'm wondering if you can help clear that up, that that sort of dichotomy up for me. Yeah, it's a very it's a it's quite a conundrum, isn't it? Um, let's just start from the premises in a perfectly pro private property society. Uh, you know, barring covenant communities where you have like rules that apply to everybody in that community, then persons can do, you know, uh, what they want uh, on their property, provided they don't violate 
anyone else's rights or the, you know, non-aggression principle. So we don't, but we don't live in that world. We live in a world with public property, of course. And in that world, we, we have some space that is not owned, uh, particularly, I think it really does belong to uh, the taxpayers, frankly, but it's not looked at that way. And I don't think you can enforce uh, things uh, like uh, drug prohibitions on that property. Of course, you can enforce it on your own private property. You don't want somebody to use drugs in your place. Uh, that's certainly your prerogative. Uh, or if you require them to use drugs, <laughs> that's your prerogative too. But they don't, they don't necessarily have to abide unless, they, you know, unless they're willing to leave. But that, that's, that's basically it there. I mean, really, we're, we, the problem is we're dealing in two realms here. One is the theoretical realm. One's the practical realm. And practically, I think that you have to make allotments for, for adults 18 and over to do with their bodies what they will, including putting whatever substance in their bodies that they desire to put in. And um, if, if the drug market was actually not a black market, this would be much less dangerous than it is today. As for abortion, uh, I said as I said in there, there's two, there's two parts of this. One is the legal question, and the other is the moral question. Uh, legally, I think it's, uh, it, it's as it stands, we're moving toward the right direction of uh, making this a state's issue. Uh, and morally, I will say straight up, I'm a pro-life person. I believe that no matter what the size of an individual they have the right to, to be alive, and nobody should be allowed to violate that right by killing them. That's a non-aggression principle infraction. So, and it's also, I think, immoral. And as a Christian, I don't, uh, I don't accept it. But I don't know that we can legislate all morality. And uh, <clears throat> I think that it's best dealt at the state and local, dealt with at the state and local level. So just to just to make sure I understand this correctly, um, state, it, it, you know, states should ha- have the ability to determine whether or not abortion should be legal or illegal, but yeah. they shouldn't be able to uh, determine whether or not drugs should be legal or illegal. Uh, I don't. I don't. Here's the thing. Yeah. Uh, I'm saying that states, it's not, it's, yeah, this is not statism. I'm talking about uh, states' rights. Yeah. And I do think that states can pass laws that suggest that you can't uh, murder somebody. Uh, that is, to me, a violation of the non aggression principle and also utterly un, un, immoral from, uh, uh, from a, from a, from a, from a Christian standpoint. And I do, Hold, I do. I am a Christian, uh, but drugs are different. It's not. This is not a perfect analogy that you're drawing. Uh, drugs aren't killing anyone, and unless somebody is actually uh, enforcing forcing it on you, then uh, it's your right to do it, and uh, it shouldn't be uh, outlawed. Okay. On so, property. But, okay. So, but you just, you just said personally, you feel like abortion is killing somebody. So why I do, sh- but I can't enforce my, my own personal views on, on other people. So do you think it's a matter of the fact that like, it's just one of the abortions, just one of those issues where it, it's too ambiguous on a societal level. Like people just like in the aggregate 
are just so split on it that, you know, it's just not something you could practically try to legislate for the entire country. Is that basically sort of, okay. I got what you're saying. Okay. Okay. Well, I can see that argument for sure. And um, thank you. I appreciate it because that actually does help me make a lot more sense of what you were saying. Um, and, uh, cause it, you know, it's, it's my libertarian brain, you know, things that don't add up or make sense to me really bother me. And I like, I, yeah, you sure. Know. It gets some cognitive dissonance. Yeah. It. I have to, to figure that out. So, okay. That, okay. So at least that makes a lot more sense. So I appreciate that. Um, one, I want to shift gears a little bit here to, you know, or a lot. Um, but we, you know, it, my entire adult life since I was eight, you know, I turned 18 and, and, uh, 2000 early, you know, early 2002. Um, so my entire adult life, basically the country's been at war. Um, right. you know, man, is, is war and peace, the, 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 the battle that's going on in Ukraine right now and, and the U S Russia, U S China relations. Um, does that, do you feel like that needs to be the top issue of the campaign? Um, yes. And, and why? Yeah. Well, because we can't do other things if we're all dead. Like I said, we can't end the Fed if we're all dead. Uh, so it's the most, you know, ex- it's the greatest existential threat that we face. And uh, that is the prospect of actual nuclear war, thanks to the exacerbations of the situation by the U.S. and its NATO uh, allies, if you will. It's NATO, it's NATO tools, really. So that, that issue... Uh, the Ukraine uh, conflict is, to me, paramount, and it has to be for, first and foremost on our agenda, because without that being resolved, uh, we have we run the risk of not being able to resolve anything. You know, given your experience, you know, having been on the left for for such a huge part of your life, um, what do you make of the fact that the left really does seem to be? Mm-hmm. much more the war the war party you know for lack of a better term party um yeah. you know when i was when i was in college when i was you know back on the left the on the left um you know we were the we were the anti-war people we were the ones showing up uh, uh mm-hmm. to donald rumsfeld speeches or whatever and and making our voices heard um and and you know standing against the iraq war what 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 do you think happened there yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you. I was against the Iraq war. In fact, I wrote and spoke against it at rallies and things like that, marched in the uh, New York City march against the Iraqi war. And I think um, they've managed to uh, consolidate the left behind the entire political establishment using Trump as the foil with which to do it. So what they did is made Trump the enemy and so that anything... Uh, Trump held is deemed to be uh, anathema. Likewise, they they took Trump and they got the whole left to identify with with the establishment by virtue of making him the villain and then uh, making the whole left identify with everything uh, that the establishment holds to be uh, important, including war, including censorship, including COVID lockdowns and vaccine, forced vaccinations, you name it, the left is behind it. And that's that's the circumstance that came uh, from the Trump phenomenon. So if Trump was much more of a war hawk, then do you think the left would have been uh, very happy to be anti-war? Yeah, probably. I mean, the way they, they vilified him so that they could get the left 
in particular, an otherwise obstreperous and, uh, you know, difficult contingent to deal with behind all of these things. Uh, so it worked very perfectly. It's as if he was, you know, con- you know, like a puppet that they controlled. And I'm not saying he's wittingly under their control. I think he is unwittingly under their control or they're using him and he's unwittingly, he's been unwittingly used as a foil uh, to drive all the uh, otherwise oppositional uh, political contingents uh, into their arms. What do you think it'll take, Michael, to, to, to bring an end to this conflict? Do you think public opinion shifting is enough, or do you think we need more than that? Well, we could see that public opinion doesn't move these people. Uh, what moves them is the evidence of their failures. Uh, but they're very, very slow and reluctant to admit that. Um, so I think it's going to take, uh, you know, some disasters, uh, unfortunately. And uh, uh, it might actually escalate further before these regime puppets uh, come to terms with the fact that they're not going to get the outcome that they seek, which I think ultimately is the ouster of Putin. And they're not going to get that uh, on their terms. Now, I, I would, you know, I would applaud the Russian people if they were to overthrow Putin themselves, but without CIA installed uh, coup apparatuses like happened in uh, Ukraine itself in 2014. Uh, so, I, and it's very hard to see whether anything is a color revolution or is organic, um, given the way that they obfuscate everything and control the media. So I wouldn't surpri- it wouldn't surprise me if they do uh, infiltrate Russia and uh, maybe begin to uh, instigate a kind of overthrow, but I'll be very suspicious of what's behind it. In any case, back to the question, I think it's just, I don't know that public opinion sways these people. We thought it was outrageous during the Gulf, you know, the Iraqi war, I should say, when over a million people marched in New York and there was no coverage of the events. And there, was, there were marches all over the country and all over the world, and they did not find their way into the media. And then the Me Too movement protests happened, and it was everywhere. So it, it's, it's very selective of what they, want to, uh, what they want to promote and what they want to squelch. And I don't think that public opinion will, will, will mean much to these people. They have a way uh, and an, an ability to... Uh, keep it under a lid and keep it out of sight uh, through their media apparatuses. You know, given how powerful these forces are, you know, whether it's the intelligence community, community, uh, the banking community, the media, the the corporations that are now sort of in league with with uh, big government. Um, do you do you think that there's still a political solution to this? Uh, you know, sort of the, the problem of the state. Yes, but it's not as we were talking from the beginning, I think it's not a top-down solution. I don't think that it's going to happen by virtue of who is elected president. I don't think it can be dismantled that way. It has to be from the ground up, from the bottom up, through localism and uh, decentralization, and basically getting the statists, uh, the federal statists, and I call them also globalists, off of our backs uh, through 
refusal. And that's the premise of my, uh, what I call the grand refusal in my book, The Great Reset and the Struggle for Liberty. Uh, it, the premise is that we can't control what these people try to do, but we can cut the puppet strings from ourselves. Yeah, that's a really, that's a really empowering idea. You know, the, the idea that, you know, like, just for the average person listening out there who cares about these things, you know, to, to, you know, start getting involved with your school boards, start getting involved in your local communities and do what you actually can do and affect what you actually can affect. Um, yes. you know, that, that it really does sound like the way you want to empower people. Um, you know, yes. and, and w would you characterize your campaign, um, as more of an advertising campaign for Liberty as opposed to actually trying to be president? Well, there's part of it that is a you know it's a media campaign and a PR campaign, but there is the the object of trying to gain five percent of the of the national vote for the presidency, which would get get the uh, Libertarian Party the fi uh, the matching funds that these other parties are uh, are party to, which they shouldn't be at all in the first place. But that's the game. That's how it's been rigged. So uh, until we can change the game, we have to play by it. What exactly are these matching funds? Do you have any idea how much money we're talking about? Um, I don't have the exact sums, and I think there's a there's a cap. I know there's a cap on it, but up to a certain sum, there the federal government matches the funds that are raised. Do you, Do you think there would be any sort of conflict in, in of interest in uh, the Libertarian Party using government money, um, or is it sort of the the kind of thing where it's like, hey, you know? Let's use it. Let's use their own system against them, kind of thing. Well, I think Rothbard, and I'm paraphrasing, he didn't say this explicitly, but he's implying in different places that we have to use the state to dismantle it. And if we can use the state to dismantle the state, that is to our, our benefit, as long as we don't lose sight of the object. Right. Yeah, I remember one of the one of my, the, my favorite things that I ever read that Rothbard Rothbard wrote was, you know, this sort of idea that it's not an either or scenario, right? It's not you, you don't have to um, vote against a, a tax decrease because it's still taxes, right? You can still yeah. vote for the tax decrease because it's better than what was there, and still advocate for you know well, what we would really like is a zero percent income tax here, you know. But yes. hey, the ten percent is a lot better than the twenty percent sort of thing, and I, I always. You know, I always loved that, um, you know, that that approach. It, you know, it's not about being, um, you know, pragmatic over pure, a purist or a purist over a pragmatic. You, you really can do both, I think. Um, yeah, I think. yeah, that's right. You have the principles in mind. And, and, and even Rothbard said that, look, he didn't care whether somebody was a minarchist or a anarcho-capitalist as long as they were radical and as long as they had... And here I think I'm quoting him, a hatred for the state. Yep, that's right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> do you hate the state? Oh, yeah. Do you hate the that's state more I than you hate the left? <laughs> I never considered running for office because I didn't want to be an employee of the state. But, you know, the mission that the, the Mises Caucus laid out made made good sense to me. What was the second question? I'm sorry, I talked. Well, I'm curious there. if you like, you know, given your background and your history, do you hate the state more than you hate the left? Um, Yeah, definitely. Because did, was it always that way or did it take well, a little because time? <laughs> all leftism is statism, but not all statism is leftism.
There is statism that comes from the right, and I hate them all. Uh, I've always hated rightist statism, and, I, and then I came to, to hate leftist statism, so put the two together, I hate all statism. And since uh, statism is, is, a larger, uh, is a larger issue that uh, it runs across left and right, uh, I have more disdain for the statism than I do leftism, although I will add that leftisms are, leftists are particularly prone to statism. What are some of the ways, I'm, I'm wondering, Michael, that you in your own life have tried to create a more um, libertarian experience for yourself and your family? What, is, what are some of the things that you've, you've tried to do? Well, I followed the nine-point plan that I lay out in my book. And that is, uh, I have uh, resisted uh, the dictates of the state through my own personal behavior. For example, uh, you know, divesting from ESG uh, banks and uh, stocks, uh, fighting against the central bank digital currency, uh, and refusing it when it comes. Um, and just, uh, I would say, uh, being a... Um, you know, being a beacon for liberty in my writing, uh, you know, if you're talking about like, have I moved to Idaho and created like part of a small community yet? No, I haven't done that yet. Uh, I'm not sure I have to. There's reasons why I stay where I am. Uh, part of it is family. Uh, it's family concerns. I have all of my children live in Pittsburgh and likewise, I want to be around them. Uh, as my daughter has uh, a baby, a child, a three-year-old, and is having another, I want to be around for that. So uh, whenever that becomes unnecessary or when they spread out of different places, then I will, I will seek to relocate in a, a local, uh, localist community and, uh, and uh, forward the uh, localist agenda. One thing I wanted to ask you about, Michael, before we run out of time, is um, is the issue of policing, um, and, and more specifically, you know, sometimes I feel like some some in the libertarian sphere are, you know, a little too anti police from for like for my liking, or you know, in terms of what I you know what I would agree with, mm -hmm. um, while I tend to agree that there's there needs to be massive reform. Mm -hmm. um, you know, do, do you do you, are you one of the type of libertarian who would equate you know the uh, ATF agent with like the small town cop who you know in you know rural Alabama or rural you know I Iowa, um, just trying to protect their community? No, they're different. They're different. One is coming from the central government, and they have they're imposing uh, central dictates on the population. The other is trying to protect. You know, as you get more and more local, you get closer and closer to private protection. It's not private protection because they're still, it's still being funded by taxes, but it's actually closer to the principle of private property protection. And that's the direction we need to move. So there's a very big difference between the two. In terms of the police, uh, how I feel about the police, uh, you know, I, you know, obviously I'm, uh, Look, they're agents of the state and enforcers uh, of state dictates. I'm not, uh, and never ever <laughs> was a back of the blue person, and that's totally anathema to me. It makes me uh, almost ill. But I will say this: there are some libertarians that I think 
argue for like killing police officers and violating their personal individual rights uh, because they're opposed to them. Now, I think that's wrong. And I think people lose their humanity in the in that way. Um, they they actually would do to these people what they do to others, uh, and uh, likewise, they become no better than them. I think that's a mistake, and I I will stand by that. Would Would you also agree that you know we need policing, right? Like it's a service yes. we need. Um, and you know, our local police departments are real are the only game in town, right? So we, we do yeah. want them to do um, their jobs. Right. Yes. The job the yeah, job that they should be doing, property. which is protect property and life and things like that. Yeah, protecting property and life is an essential task in any system. So you know, as it stands, the best the best protect line of defense is the local line of defense because it's getting closer to the property line of defense. Uh, private uh, companies doing property protection and protection of life and liberty. Uh, So I don't, I don't, I'm not against policing. Uh, And uh, like I said, I think the the best solution is to move toward private, but, uh, and and get to, to a private property society. But in the interim, we have to have policing. And I think local police under uh, this is where it's important that libertarians are in office and can get control of these police departments. And so that the local police are under libertarian uh, control so that we can then instill our, our uh, make sure our values are represented. And that's why I think we're encouraging, uh, for one, that's one of the reasons we're encouraging this kind of localization, decentralization, and taking control of local governments uh, the police force, the sheriff, uh, uh, and uh, the school board, and the uh, and other uh, facets of local government. What's up next for you, Michael? Are you going to be doing any traveling? Are you going to be trying to go around to you know local libertarian conventions and things like that? Do you have any big appearances coming up? Um, you know, let people know. Um, you know, if you're if you're going to be in their area in the next you know couple of months and things like that. Yeah, I mean, I, I tend I tend to let I have a long calendar of events I'll be heading to. For example, this weekend I'm heading. Last night I attended a local uh, social for the Allegheny County Libertarians. Uh, I'm then heading to uh, Chesapeake City, Maryland, uh, for a crab fest. Then I'll be on the road for uh, many events one in new jersey all this is found on my calendar on my website by the way at wrecktheregime.com there's an events link that shows you everywhere i'm going and you'll see a very very uh dense uh uh, list of appearances and podcasts so i'm trying to get out there as much as possible and uh, i'm not turning down any offers i have accepted every offer i'll be going to all the major state conventions uh and I will be, you know, I'll be out there on the road quite a bit. Let's say you get the Libertarian nomination, Michael. Um, is there anybody mm-hmm. in particular who you would really love to have with you on the road as your VP uh, nominee? Well, yeah, I mean, there's a couple people. Um, there's two people that I would love to have uh, on the team, and it really depends on whether they'd be interested. I know one is interested but may not be able 
the other may not you know may not be in, a, uh, may not be interested but i think is able uh the first one is maj torah i think maj represents an important uh uh, function and he's doing a great work in the Libertarian Party, and he also represents of communities that are unrepresented in the party, and so I think he he makes a, 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 a significant contribution uh, to the to the Libertarian and Liberty movement, Libertarian Party and Liberty movement, and then the other is Clint Russell, but uh, I I can't say which one is number one or two, and let's see how it shakes out. Uh, Clint is a brilliant mind, uh, incredible thinker, very comprehensive in his views. Uh, he knows details, and he also knows theory. He knows uh, he knows you know a great deal about uh, libertarianism, and he's got great thoughts altogether. I think he's brilliant, as I said. So I would love either one of them, but I don't know which one it's going to end up being. If, if any, I mean, there's a possibility that it turns out to be neither. Well, certainly so that's assume. one of the things about the Libertarian Party is uh, compared to these other parties is that you don't have any choice in the matter, really. In the end, uh, you don't have any choice. In the so, end. I mean, the, but having a running mate is, is I think, important. Uh, so uh, if you have a running mate, then you have another person's voice in the campaign. And it also helps bring in more contingents to your campaign and uh, gets gains more support and starts uh, increasing momentum and so forth. So I think it is important. Uh, I know that in the end, it's not decided by the candidate, uh, but it's I think it's still a vital uh, part of the puzzle. Michael, thank you so much for taking the time to join me. Uh, this has been a really fun conversation. I've really enjoyed it. And I please let everyone listening know uh, your website, where they can learn more about the campaign and um, also how, you know, if they might be able to purchase uh, one of the many books that you've, you've written over the years. Oh, thanks so much for asking that. So the campaign can be found at wrecktheregime.com. That's R-E-C, the regime.com, one word. Uh, there you'll find all the, all the things about the campaign that we're, we're putting up regularly, events, uh, also, you know, positions uh, and uh media that we're getting and uh, different things like that. This podcast will be posted there when it comes out. For example, we're keeping a complete record as I've always done. And I've done that on michaelrechtenwald.com. That's my personal business uh, website, michaelrechtenwald.com, one word. There you can find all my books for sale, uh, all my articles, uh, essays, appearances, media attention, you know, where I'm cited in the media uh, and everything is free except the books, which I send out individually signed copies. I hand, I hand uh, inscribe them if you wish to have a certain message put on it. I do that this way. I'm living, I'm doing, I'm practicing what I preach and that is setting up a parallel economy. You can go on Amazon and buy any of my books and these are not self-published there. I have a publisher, but I buy them directly from the publisher and then I sell them uh, to to the uh, reader that way. Michael, thanks again so much. And um, best of luck to you uh, as the campaign develops. Safe travels. Enjoy the crab Thank fest. You. And Thank um, you. I hope to talk to you soon. Thank you so much, Eric. It's great talking to you. This is the Just Listening Podcast. I got to go. Go where? We just got it. 
I got that thing. I gotta go. With pizza artist Eric John. Uh, wait a couple of minutes. We'll all leave together, okay? This way you don't go out like a bunch of hobos staggering out one at a time. Please like, share, and subscribe.